The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Are you ready for the next level of leadership? It's going to be here before you know it. Today's leaders need the skills, connections, and savvy to become top professionals in their fields. Welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet people who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here's your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome. This is Maureen Metcalf at Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations, and today I am delighted that we are joined by Gary Weber. Gary's a subject and collaborator in neuroscience experiments at Yale Institute of Noetic Sciences, Bowman Institute, the Center of Study of Non-Symbolic Consciousness, Johns Hopkins, and Penn State. From 2000 to 2004, Gary was an Associate VP of Research for Penn State, where he was responsible for all technology transfer operations for the university, including angel investing, venture capital, license, patenting, and startup support. He was also responsible for external R&D contracts and interfaces with the university. In the late 90s, he was a senior vice president of science and technology for PPG, responsible for all corporate R&D with four research labs and about 1,000 engineers, scientists, and tech people, and about $260 million budget. He was also a member of the executive committee. Since then, he's been doing research and writing about happiness beyond thought and, and applying his extensive research experience to helping leaders and employees bef- become more effective through building an ability to focus and manage their thinking. So the reason I invited Gary is that as leaders, myself really included in this bucket, I can become so focused on uh, the multi, multiple obligations and really not focus on any specific task and consequently find myself making mistakes. Uh, so Gary's work is uh, both the research and the very practical tools is designed to help those of us who find ourselves uh, a, a bit overtaxed and uh, multitasking on a regular basis come back to an ability to uh, focus and actually accomplish our tasks in with the high quality we hope we are doing. So as part of the Voice America series, we're really looking at Leader 2050 and what do we need to do as leaders to move our organizations and our society forward and integrate the volume of change that we're all facing. And again, Gary's background in technology and research is well aligned with with this transition in that he has been helping individuals and organizations develop this technology and transfer it, and so is well aware of what we as leaders face on the other side of the pendulum as as we're absorbing that change and trying to implement it within our organizations and um, 
not adversely impact our people in an effort to produce results and value to our clients. So my hope is that everyone takes away one or two ideas from our conversation today that they can apply in the next week. So, Gary, thank you so much for joining us. Can you give us a little bit more about your journey? Because from our conversations, it's just fascinating to me. Okay. Well, I was in graduate school working on my Ph.D. in material science, and I was coming into campus, and I had the opportunity to just look at what was going on in my consciousness. And all I saw was a never-ending stream of what I call blah, blah. It just went on and on. Uh, without end, uh, in the way that was causing me a lot of stress and strain, and it had no particular uh, value that I could see at that particular moment. So I wondered if it was possible to perhaps somehow get control of this uh, runaway train that was uh, speaking in my head all day long and get gain back some uh, coherency uh, out of you know cutting that down to size. And so what I did, uh, very empirically, was to just set out and say, okay, can I somehow find a way to stop that or slow down that narrative? It turns out that narrative is very unpleasant for, for m- almost everybody. There's an excellent study at UVA done just uh, 2014 uh, called Just Think the Challenges of Disengaged Mind by Wilson. It's published in Science that looked at exactly how painful this blah, blah, blah is that goes on in our heads. And it's very painful. It gets, uh, I won't give you the whole paper, but it gets down to the point to where uh, a bunch of undergraduates would sooner shock themselves with a shocking collar around their ankle than sit by themselves and just listen to their narrative for 15 minutes at a time. So this is a, a problem for all of us. Uh, if you watch that process, if you watch what goes on in your consciousness when this blah blah is taking place, you can start to see patterns. You can watch your mind. You can study it just like you study anything. And so I tried to see if I could do this uh, empirically, scientifically, non-religious, uh, contemporary sources, just to see what experiments I could run on my own consciousness, and could I in fact slow down this narrative? And it turns out, yes, you can do that. Uh, you can slow it down uh, dramatically, and by doing that, you can gain a lot of bandwidth back and a lot of energy consumption back. And amazingly, uh, even as this gets quieter and quieter, this narrative dies down, uh, problem solving and planning are actually enhanced. Uh, those are, it turns out, two very different brain circuits. There's a brain circuit that creates this blah, blah, blah that uh, you can really deactivate almost. And the other circuit, problem-solving and planning, has now more bandwidth and more coherency and more ability to be present for what's happening at the present time. So typical test I did was just said, well, okay, what is the nature of this blah-blah in consciousness? I saw a lot of it was just all about I, me, my. And so I wondered if there was some way to understand what this I was that we have. It turns out evolutionarily it's only about 75,000 years old. We broke off from chimpanzees six million years ago, so it's a very recent evolution. There were some reasons why it developed. And the question now is, is this blah, blah, blah uh, evolutionarily useful for us, or has it perhaps uh, used up its uh, time stamp and should now be changed into something else, modified to this new operating system with uh, different parameters that didn't give so much uh, pressure importance 
to this blah, blah going on and uh, change the nature of it. If not just stopping it, then at least getting it broken up into smaller chunks, uh, decreasing the energy and decreasing the power that it has to spin us up into almost unsustainable uh, unhappiness. So, so this inner conversation uh, that I call managing my thinking it is, in fact, innate then to humans as a species. Yes? That's correct. Yes, and we're unique in that. As near as we can tell, no other species has this internal narrative operating. And was it ever useful? Well, it, it developed Maybe to keep because 75,000 years ago, we were just beginning to get uh, successful as a species, very successful as a species, and we began to get uh, larger and larger groups. And as we got larger and larger groups, it required us to coordinate uh, complicated and large activities. Uh, that's an also a unique capability of our species. There are other species that run large groups, but they don't do complex activities. You'll never see two chimpanzees carrying the same log. So mm. it really comes down to this is a unique thing we have. It was useful for us to basically dominate the planet uh, by having this ability to, uh, to assign tasks, differential tasks to different, different people and uh, get different things worked out, communicate back and forth. Uh, this was very important for us to really dominate the planet. And now, uh, it's, that was very good and it was, things were very simple. We're just coming out of the cave, starting agriculture was beginning. Um, very small numbers of people. As these numbers multiplied and multiplied, it got so complex that now we can see we're completely overwhelmed by the complexity of the world. And so the simple use it had before is now overwhelming us. We have too much information, too much data, too many contacts. We just need to find some way to get this organized. It was useful, and now as this work by Wilson uh, and Science shows, it's a, a, an unpleasant, painful experience for us to have this. Almost nobody likes it. Most of our uh, hobbies and avocations are developed just so we can stop that blah, blah going on. Oh, interesting. Okay. So this would be, and again, correct me if I misunderstand, this would be like running old software, old WordPerfect software on my new fancy tablet and also, yeah, and trying to make it function when there is more recent software that's designed for my tablet. Absolutely. I mean, this is, was a great software program back when WordPerfect came out. But, but now, as things have, have moved on down the road, the world has changed. Uh, it's uh, obvious to all of us the world has changed dramatically. And that old operating system from 75,000 years ago clearly can't handle today's requirements. We have to find some new way to modify that operating system so that we can have it be functionally useful to us and totally supportive of what we're trying to do and to cope with today's world. Because clearly, most of us are not successful at managing all the tasks we have in front of us and all what's going on inside our narrative. So can we cut that narrative down? And so the funny example that you referred to when we got on the call was that I accidentally sent you my lunch plans for my father for the weekend rather than sending you the script for today. So, so a perfect example of just too much going on. Well, we all went into that. There's just so much... 
uh, internal dialogue people are running. And if they, if they watch this, you know, if they can actually step back and recognize they can watch their mind, you can actually watch your thoughts, and you can say, okay, uh, look what's going on. And you can start to analyze those and recognize that this I, me, my thing that we have, this egoic structure that we generated 75,000 years ago, uh, is really at the base of all of this thing. Turns out there are different brain circuits. There is this blah, blah, blah circuit, which we call the default mode network. There are lots and lots of papers on it. I can give you lots of references. And what this does is when we aren't doing anything, a task, we're actually performing a task, that blah, blah is stops. It's a different circuit. The tasking circuit hmm. is discrete from it. It's very separate. Again, a lot of research on this. And that tasking circuit, we do tasks, many of us, hobbies, whatever, hang gliding, wingsuiting, whatever it is, so we can just block out the blah, blah, blah. And you find out that it just dances back and forth between that tasking network and this default network, which is the network it defaults to, which brings in this blah, blah, blah internal narrative. So we do lots of tasks and lots of hobbies just to keep out of listening to that blah, blah, blah. And so there's an easier way. You can actually start to deconstruct the blah, blah. And as you get that down less and less, the tasking circuit has a lot more bandwidth and energy to work with to accomplish what it needs to do without all the interference and noise from this blah, blah circuit. So can you tell us more about how do I deconstruct that? Yeah, it's very it's very simple. I mean, it's, it's almost too simple. Uh, it's really just beginning, instead of trying to fix all the objects in the world, which are clearly impossible, we just mm-hmm. drop back and say, okay, is it possible for us to just look at the eye? We've never, I had never even looked at the eye and began to question what it was and why it was and, uh, you know, just how, how useful it was. So I just began to ask simple questions like asking myself, where am I during the course of the day? You can put this on your, on your reminder app on your smartphone. Just have it pop up six, seven times a day. And just ask yourself, where am I? And just see what the answer is. It seems like a silly question at first. uh, But when you ask that, something happens. And you begin to just question this I. Begin to wonder if, in fact, you know, what is this I? Is it okay that I can possibly analyze this circuit? Because if you look, watch your daily life, you can see that, in fact, this narrative has almost nothing to do with what's actually happening in your life. It's like a parallel universe. Uh, you can walk around, you eat your food, you digest your food, you do all your tasks without that narrative up there having almost anything to do with it. It's like a parallel world up there. So as you begin to deconstruct this blah, blah circuit, you find that, in fact, virtually all of your activities are carried out non-consciously. You aren't conscious of how they get accomplished. You don't think up what you say, good research on this too, I mean, what you say comes out of really no place. You don't think up what you say. You come in just immediately after it's said and make stuff. Oh, about interesting. It. Okay, so let me go back to the where am I. Okay. So since we last talked, I started paying attention to that and asking myself that question. And one of the things I noticed is it, it helped me stop the multitasking. Mm. So if I was on a phone call with somebody, I'm tempted to look at my email, mm-hmm. um, which may be the cause of some of my errors. It, <laughs> <laughs> not shocking. Um, then I actually stopped. Is that huh. the intent of that question? 
or is there a deeper intent? Well, well the intent is basically that in the course of your busy day, you just do what we saw. Just, well, you did. Just stop and ask, where am I? Mm-hmm. You find that the stream stops. It may stop okay. only for a short period of time. But even for that short period of time, you've got a break in your total stream. And your brain has enormous value of time to, co- to contrast. It's very different from what you were doing before. So it's very important to see if you could put it into your day and see the difference it makes. The brain records this. It likes this not blah, blah, blah space. And so that's an important data point for it. Okay, fascinating. So we're going to go on break now. And uh, when we come back, we'll talk more with Gary about very practical applications and why they work and how they work and what is the benefit of stopping that inner narrative and how it will help me as a leader and everyone listening, presumably, become more effective, have more mental and physical capacity to actually meet the challenges we face. So we will be back momentarily. Metcalf & Associates is a management consulting and leadership development firm dedicated to helping leaders, their management teams, and their organizations implement innovative leadership and business practices to help create market differentiation necessary to thrive in this rapidly changing environment. As the author of eight award-winning leadership books, Maureen Metcalf and her associates are positioned to help you and your organization grow and thrive. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen is ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your needs through her expertise in keynote speaking, leadership coaching and training, transformational and organizational growth consulting. For your business, we can help with facilitated leadership retreats, organizational planning, culture alignment, individual and organizational assessments, online leadership development programs, and one-on-one or corporate-wide leadership development sessions. Move forward with Metcalf & Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back. This is Maureen Metcalf and Gary Weber, Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. And today, Gary is talking about uh, brain research and how we leverage what he has learned to help us be clearer in our thinking, less distraction, and by mitigating that distraction, we also drop the emotional impact that that inner conversation often has on us. So, Gary, you mentioned before break two things. One is asking the question, where am I? And then you went in and said something about we don't even realize often that we're speaking or, or I, am, I am speaking not terribly consciously. Can you say more about that? This is something I, I am unaware of. Yeah, it's a, it was a fascinating study done I think just last year in Scandinavia by one of the top research institutes, and they work with a bunch of undergraduates, and they were, you know, I won't go through the whole details of the test, but the conclusive, absolute, solid result of it was that, in fact, we don't think up what we say. 
I mean, if you watch very carefully, you can do this for yourself, what comes out, what you say, you don't have any idea you're going to say it before you say it. If you're talking with your friends, speech just comes out. And if you watch closely, you come in. The, the brain comes in immediately after you say it and li- looks at it and listens to it and tries to see if anything was said that was not okay. But if you just watch where your words come from when you're talking, like you're talking now, you aren't pre-thinking those. You don't pre-think up everything you say. If you did, you'd be, you'd be dragging along all day long. We just speak. The words just come out of no place, and we don't know what we're saying until we've said it. You know, we may pre-rehearse. We may imagine we're going to tell the boss this or tell our partner that or tell our kids this. But in fact, when it gets there, we don't say that. We say something else. And so all the pre-rehearsal for how we think we're going to say, carry out a, a speech, doesn't work. It doesn't happen. In, in normal conversation, that isn't what occurs. What happens is a much more dynamic thing that, like I say, you don't, you don't know before you say it that you're going to say it. It just comes out. And that certainly seems to be the case as I host the show. The, the <laughs> conversation we have isn't exactly as planned. Yeah, and, and you, you, just, you don't have any idea what's going to happen. Even This gets a little bit broader, but, but in the course of your day, you don't really have any idea what you're going to think. I mean, if you just watch your thoughts, just stop sometime and just watch your thoughts pop into your consciousness and just ask yourself if you think up these thoughts or if they just... There they are, there they are, there they are, there they are. And you recognize it, in fact, you're not in charge of thinking up your thoughts either. So this I that appears to claim to be running the place believes it's doing the speaking and doing this thinking, but in fact, if you watch carefully, you can see it hasn't even been, it's not even involved in either one of them. It doesn't think up what it says, nor does it think up what it thinks. I get that doesn't think up what it thinks because I realize things pop into my head that seem awfully random. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I kind of hope I have some control over my speech. But but if you if you watch, I mean, just watch it. Don't believe me. Well, I can send you the research. <laughs> just just watch the process in the course of your day, and see if in fact you know it, that's the truth. If you do in fact think up what you say, or if it just comes out of no place. So what then keeps me, as the host of this radio show for people listening, talking about the stuff that that is on our script rather than um, going into some conversation about art or physics, other than I'm unqualified? <laughs> well, well, I mean, it, it, it comes out of offline. I mean, the, the, the great misconception we have, but the biggest misconception we have is that this I uh, is really in charge of the of this show. And what it turns out, and some great research on this, is that the I is really just like a, like a press secretary, a communicator, uh, an explainer. But, but the vast majority of processing, 99.99% of it, happens offline. There's a massive parallel processor offline with a data storage capacity beyond imagination that really does all the hard work. It solves all the complicated problems. It does all the tasks. And it solves even the most complex problems. We don't solve those complex problems in what we call consciousness. Our consciousness, where this eye is operating, can only handle seven plus or minus two things at a time. And it can only work on one problem at a time. There's a reason, the reason all these that we evolved that way. 
But really all the important stuff, the powerful big stuff, is done offline. Your thoughts come from offline. Your problem solutions come from offline. Uh, again, excellent research on this. Uh, this one particular paper in the Journal of Cognitive Neuroscience out of MIT uh, looked at this very thing, and they gave people complex problems to solve, something that you couldn't just solve one, two, three, X, Y, Z. You had to really... You had to really think about and come up with a solution to the problem that was not just a linear one, two, three, four, five, six. And they found they could actually track how in the, the offline brain this is handled. They could actually watch it move to one part of the brain to be worked on. And then they could see when the problem had been solved, the complex aha had been developed, it worked around to the other side of the brain, frequencies changed, and eight seconds before the aha, I've got the answer, boss, arrived, they could tell you that the problem had been solved. Eight seconds before you could even be aware of it, the problem had been solved offline. Okay, so this, again, back to the computer analogy, mm -hmm. it would be I go to my directory, I pull out a file, I work on that file, and then I save it back to the hard drive. Mm -hmm. And on my desktop that stuff is no longer present. Mm -hmm. It's saved in long-term memory somewhere. Exactly. Are you saying our brains work relatively similarly? You know, we don't have any idea what the, you know, the huge capability we have offline on our computers is doing. We have no clue. We have our desktop, and we have what's happening in front of us. But how that all takes place, we don't have the foggiest idea about and it's the same thing with the brain, which is kind of a model for our computers. You know, the brain has this small virtual memory that's out there, you know, talking about what's going on. And then the actual problem solving is done offline. We use a metaphor of a rider on a huge elephant. But the elephant is huge, huge, beyond huge, compared to the rider on top, which has very little processing, a very tiny CPU, and a very small role, actually, to play. It's almost all done offline. Okay, so when you're saying the I, mm -hmm. you're talking about the writer, yes. and yet, and I think I'm talking about the whole package of the elephant and the writer. Mm -hmm. So this entity called Maureen has mm -hmm. a, um, a little part that is the active memory and, and hopefully a big part that's the processing memory, and they're shooting information back and forth. Yes. But, but, but arguably, Maureen... Uh, we can't find Maureen any place. I mean, if we ask this where am I question, uh, neuroscientifically, you can't find Maureen anywhere. There's no place where Maureen exists within the brain. I mean, Maureen is an ad hoc entity. As waves of energy sweep across the cortex, Maureen's ad hoc assembled from place to place, from site to site, with different situations. There is no little place where Maureen sits in the brain. She's just a phantom of the energy sweeping across the cortex. <laughs> Sometimes she feels like a phantom, period. What? Okay. So, so in my brain, there is no address book that says Maureen lives here. No, it's a, a compilation of all of the parts within the computer again. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's totally just a... a uh, Created entity that we've imagined, you know, we don't really think of it. We think it's somehow located between, behind our eyes, between our ears, someplace deep in the core of the brain, there's where Marina is sitting. But in fact, that is not the case. I mean, she is all over the place, and she's assembled different, differentially. If you watch when you meet different people in the course of a day, and you see who shows up, 
for those meetings. If you meet your partner, if you meet your kids, if you meet your dad, if you meet your boss, if you meet a big, large group, you can watch and see a different Marine is there for each one of those situations. There's not one Marine shows up. You can see she's different. And each time she manifests, she is a different entity. That does make sense. And and the entity that shows up is the entity that is required for that interaction, just like I put documents in my um, mobile device and project them on a screen for that interaction. So this one is a presentation on resilience, and that one is a presentation on organizational vibrancy. That's right. And those two audiences would not listen to the same speech. They They wouldn't be interested in the same speech. And so as we go through our day, as we have different relationships, you can even watch if they're talking to one person, a second person comes up and joins them, how much Maureen changes and how quickly that adaptation occurs. So this idea that we have a fixed Maureen, we just don't have one. We have infinite number of Maureens. And so then there's this idea of being authentic. I'm being authentic to what? Well, that's the point. <laughs> well, I mean, if, exactly. Because there, there's no entity there who, has to, who, is, who is consistent, one, and who can be a, continuously authentic. It just She doesn't exist, or he doesn't exist. <laughs> this isn't there. So I just, just take that off the list of, of things to do? Of different uh, entities that can come up as they're required. And yet, my joking aside, I do have a sense of integrity and values and purpose that I'm assuming is consistent across those entities. But is it, is it though? I mean, if you, if, you, if you change people and you put them in di- very different environments with different people and say we took away all of your money or we, you know, something bad happened to, to, to one mm-hmm. of us, uh, would you be the same person? Or would you change? Would your values change? I mean, if, if you ended up out on the street, bankrupt, mm-hmm. Uh, would you be the same person, or would your values change? So let me go to just a ridiculous example, but but for illustration purposes. The last time I bit someone was probably as a very small child. Mm -hmm. I I mean, it's not an explicit principle that I don't bite people, but I don't bite people. Um, I don't kick people. I don't hit people walking down the street. You Mm -hmm. know, those kind of... Um, basic behaviors that were socialized out of us as very small people. Mm -hmm. And I hope that even if I go bankrupt, I don't start biting people. Well, but, I mean, if you you run across a range of personal experiences, a broad range of personal experiences, you can see it's much more situational than you might like to believe. I mean, so you can have a certain feeling towards the refugees coming out of the Middle East. And you mm-hmm. could say, well, it's too bad they're the way they are. But, in fact, if you could put yourself in their situation, even just mentally, imagine yourself yeah. in their situation with their prospects for the future, with their current history, with their genealogical history that's unfold for that particular group of people, do you really think you'd be that different from them? Would you, would you not want to get out of there? Would you not want to go someplace where it was better? Would you not do almost anything to get there? Yes, I believe those are all true statements. So, so it really brings you know this this idea of what are my core values. Yes, we've been inculcated with certain belief sets by our religion, by our 
where we were born, when we were born, what economic status was, what our training was, education, etc. We have a certain set there. But they're not inviolate. I mean, you can change people very quickly if you just change their environment dramatically. You'll find they're very different people. Because I've been in very different environments. It's amazing how adaptable we are and how fast we respond to a change in our environment. So we can be almost any anything if, if you stress to. us far enough. I mean, there's been some really good research, some old research on this thing, Stockholm Syndrome. About if you put people in a certain situation, they will become very different from how they have been in their normal day well, day life. Okay, yeah, and I am I am familiar with that. So when we come back from break, what I'd like to do because this has been fascinating to me, and yet the purpose of the show is leadership. So mm-hmm. I want to tie this back to now that I have a clearer sense of how does my brain work, or maybe I don't have a clearer sense, but what I know is it doesn't work the way I thought it did. So how does this then relate to how I lead? So let's go to break first. This is Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Gary Weber. Fascinating conversation on how our brain works. And the intent of the show then to bring this back is, what do I do as a leader to become more effective? Metcalf & Associates is a management consulting and leadership development firm dedicated to helping leaders, their management teams, and their organizations implement innovative leadership and business practices to help create market differentiation necessary to thrive in this rapidly changing environment. As the author of eight award-winning leadership books, Maureen Metcalf and her associates are positioned to help you and your organization grow and thrive. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen is ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your needs through her expertise in keynote speaking, leadership coaching and training, transformational and organizational growth consulting. For your business, we can help with facilitated leadership retreats, organizational planning, culture alignment, individual and organizational assessments, online leadership development programs, and one-on-one or corporate-wide leadership development sessions. Move forward with Metcalf and Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back. This is Maureen Metcalf and Gary Weber on Innovative Leaders, Driving Thriving Organizations. Our commitment to you as listeners is to bring in information that you don't typically hear in service of, quote, innovating how you lead. And, Gary, this conversation has been really enlightening to me as we're talking about the I, when I say I am or I do or I think, I, I have a sense of what that means, and you've slightly disrupted my sense of who I am. So from that perspective, and I'm assuming some of our listeners are having a similar experience, what do I do about this now as someone leading an organization, leading people and leading myself and leading projects? Yes, it's a great question. I get to ask that a lot. And you can now say, okay, well, so what? 
So I, you know, I start deconstructing this side. Does that make me less effective in my workplace? And I found out that, no, I became more effective. The quieter and quieter that the, my, my blah, blah got, and the less and less of the I that was there, the more effective I was in board meetings, in executive committee meetings, in business plan presentations, and listening to, to exhibits being presented, because I was the only person in the room the whole show. What happens... We all drift off. Most of us drift off someplace in the course of a meeting, and we're only there 15, 18, 35 percent of the time, but we're not there all the time. And I was the only person who was there to touch all the nuances, the body language, the facial language, the tones, listened to all the exhibits, heard all the presentations, the only person in the room who did that. So before long, you're recognized as the smartest person in the room just because you know what's going on. And okay, amazingly, so you get into this quiet enough space, out of that comes some amazing things out of this offline elephant we've been talking about, much more creative, much more innovative than what you could ever manifest as this writer sitting on top of the elephant. And okay, I, I so worked with Peter Senge. We've talked about Peter Senge before, but, yeah. but, but Peter Senge came upon me, or he, he was introduced to me, and we collaborated with for, for some time. And it was all about that. If you look at their book, the book Presence, which, which he did with Otto Scharmer, and Otto's book Theory U, uh, those are very much along these same lines. If you can get this internal dialogue very still and quiet, then out of that something really unique can emerge, not just out of you personally, but out of your whole group. I mean, if you can get, get down to where people can admit they just don't know the answer, which is the key to Peter, Peter's work, you can just get to, I don't know what the answer is to this problem. And they can get people gathered around who are decision makers for that particular problem, and not necessarily the, the C-suite person, but the people who can actually know all the details about this particular problem, and they can all get to realize they do not know what the answer is. Then out of that stillness, out of that just relative quietness and not knowing, something really amazing can happen. And your life can be like that. The more quiet this eye becomes, the less it becomes this rider up on top of the elephant shouting and yelling all the time. And the more it becomes, okay, let's listen to what this great offline elephant has generated for us as far as problem solutions, the more creative, innovative, successful you're going to be. That's the real basis of what I think 2050 leadership is going to be. We can't keep adding more information into this blah, blah network. The OS just cannot handle it. It just breaks down. We need to find a more creative way, which to me is to get a new OS, which has this you know, disempowered eye, less and less blah, blah, and more tasking network availability, clarity, presence, and openness. We just can't keep jamming things into us and expect something special to come out. It's not going to come out. It can't get through all the noise. Okay, so let me stop you there. So, so let me try to recap, uh, recapture and restate to make sure I have this right. So 15 to 18% of our time is actually present in a meeting, and the other 85%-ish is somewhere off in my head having an inter internal conversation about something could happen, might happen, will happen, has happened. That's and so I'm missing most of what's going on in the current situation. Absolutely. Just, just watch yourself in your next meeting. Whatever, whether it's 15 or 30 percent, almost nobody is there clear, present for the entire meeting. 
if you are, you so you're, you will stand out so sharply that you won't believe how much people say, oh my gosh, look at the fantastic solution Nancy came up with. I mean, it's, it is so different from what you're used to in a meeting. Just watch yourself sitting in a meeting and see how much of the time you're actually listening fully intently to the presentation, to the exhibits, to what's going on in the meeting. And so by quieting that other physiological brain circuit, so that this is a real thing that there's a circuit in my brain that's busy having those internal conversations, and yes. the more I allow that thing to go, the, the stronger that thing becomes and the weaker the ability to actually stay present and get the work done happens. Is that Absolutely. true? So then our goal is to shut down that alternative brain circuit or, or diminish it as much as possible and at the same time strengthen the circuit that's actually doing the processing. Precisely. Two very discrete circuits. We know exactly what they are. I can give you the references for what, the, what they are. Some excellent work out of Harvard and MIT on this thing. Uh, we know we can we track exactly what makes up the blah blah circuit and what makes up the tasking circuit and how they function, how they work back and forth between each other, how the control circuit manages those back and forth. This is this is now pretty well worked out in neuroscience. And so, what you talked about asking the question, "Where am I?" Mm-hmm. I, I'm assuming the way I well, I know what I thought initially was. Just am I paying attention? Mm-hmm. So am I both theoretically listening to something someone is saying and sending you the wrong email at the same time? <laughs> Which yeah. may capture why that happened. <laughs> no, I can't either. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and you, you can, there are lots of ones you can use other questions if you don't like where am I. But it, it's we first think while well, I'm sitting in this chair, blah blah blah. But then you watch and begin to. It gets deeper as it gets as the brain sees this question stopping the stream of blah blah. It just stops it for a short time, because if you look, like I said before, Maureen's everywhere. She's no place, and she's everywhere. And so that's a conundrum for the brain to look at. You can ask, you know, when am I, or what what is this I, and just see what happens. You're not going to hurt yourself. Uh, it turns <laughs> out that's just, that's just a separate or maybe I will. <laughs> what? We assume I won't hurt myself. This, is, this seems like a complex question at this moment. It is. It is very complex. But people have this, this, this angst about what happens if I start to disempower my eye will mm. not be motivated to do things. And, in fact, you, you find that motivation. In my experience, I, I was motivated heavily out of fear for okay. my, most of my, my industrial career. And when this fell away, that fear fell away, and I was much more effective. You know, motivation out of fear, to me, didn't work as well as just having that fear fall away and just be there present for the meeting. You don't run out of the meeting and just leave because this thing is not blah blahing anymore. But you have a whole different way of being in your life and being in the meetings and being with your people, your workers, your peers, your, C- your C-suite people, if you're one of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can just be present for that person. If you come to them... And you don't have a backpack on that's jam full of old memories about that particular person. If you just come to them and meet with them without your old stories, and they're just present for where they are today because they've changed, you've changed. The old stories you have aren't useful anymore today. They're old mm-hmm. stories. 
If you can let go of those, you can be really present and you can be much more effective working directly with that person than if you had to be there, you know, this backpack on your back with all the old stories. They don't help you. So this is one way I do an exercise with... Uh, clients and grad students where they look at competing commitments where where I'll say I'm committed to uh, accepting new opportunities and yet I have some inner story that says if I do that and I'm not supported I will step forward underperform and get fired and so the unconscious story is don't do that it's not safe so a process like this would also help me start to unravel some of that stuff that holds me back. Yeah, and there's some very effective, uh, really Jungian psychotherapeutic uh, techniques to address those stories because they're just stories. The stories mm-hmm. I'm going to fail about this, or if I say this is going to happen, they're just not true. I mean, you can just let go of those and say, do those help me in this situation to be more effective? Or do they just constrain me? If that story wasn't there, one, you ask, is it true? Is that story true, really true? And is having that story there help me? Or does it really hinder me? And what if I let go of that story? What if I didn't have that story? How would I be in this space at this moment? The challenge is the rider on the elephant that thinks it's in charge believes the story. So how do we unprogram? And I think that's what you're getting to is how do I disconnect the guy that's feeding me bad information? Be like, well, and, and first, bad news stations. Great work from a woman called Byron Katie. You may yeah. have heard of. She's very useful uh-huh. to do this. There's also a thing called the Sedona method. This is all union psychotherapeutic, most of it. And it really gets into that very thing. If you can bring that story up clearly and just look at that story and ask uh-huh. those simple questions. Is this true? How do I feel when I have that? How would I feel without that? And is this story helping me? Can I just let go of it? It turns out, amazingly, if you can just hold that story in consciousness that long, and it's not like very long, and just say, I don't need this story. It's not helpful to me anymore. The story goes away, which is astonishing. I couldn't believe it when I first started to do it, but it just goes away. And so that story's gone. And the brain likes this. The brain actually rewards us with dopamine for getting rid of that story, believe it or not. We actually get, it feels pleasurable to let go of these old stories we have about friends or relationships or the company or the boss or whatever. You're much more effective without them, and the brain rewards you for doing that. Somehow, evolutionarily, we encoded that in. So spring cleaning, I go running around cleaning my house. I drained my pond and cleaned the mud out and the the debris. And yet in my brain, I don't clean out the old stories. Exactly. The hurts, the slights, the whatever they are. Most of us don't. And a lot of this stuff goes back to when you were a kid. I mean, what somebody told you when you were seven or eight years old, you've got a story that you've been dragging around for year, for decades. And this story is running back there in the offline processor, which is enormous. And you can go back to that, and you can clean out the swamp. You can say, hey, look, okay, what's the story from when I was seven years old? And you can remember some you were you were abused or you were bullied or you weren't very smart or you weren't very good in athletics. And those things don't matter anymore. You're not seven years old anymore, yet we drag those stories around with us forever. You know, the thing that's fascinating about me, because I do a lot of this work, and largely, again, with grad students and coaching clients, is absolutely they happened. One of the 
someone told me the other day, it was, my second grade teacher did X. And, and so the other is at that age, whatever age it was, eight years old, right. when someone said, you're not very smart, or right. I think most of us have had a parent frustrated at some point who, who said, you know, whatever version of stop talking, right. I need my quiet, something mm-hmm. pretty simple. And what the little person heard was, you don't love me, I'm not smart, whatever variation. Mm-hmm. And that little person view of the world is what I'm carrying around about myself. So now I'm not eight years old, and there's still some little voice in there that sometimes runs the show. Well, exactly, and I work with some people that come to me who have been very abused as children, sexually Mm -hmm. abused, physically abused, and they carry those stories around their entire life, and they never can get into those, access them, bring them out, and let go of them. They're much more pernicious than just, you know, you were told you weren't so smart in third grade. But okay. those stories stay in there. And unless you can, you know, clean out that swamp, you can do this very simply. This is not, a, you know, it's not rocket science. Just go look at those old stories you have about yourself. Some of them may be so painful you can't even open them at first. But, you know, what grandma told you when you were nine years old doesn't matter anymore. You're not nine years old anymore. You're not stupid. So you can't play soccer. Who cares? Um, you can let go of all those stories, and that really does change the swamp. I, I do love the idea, and, and I have seen it work a lot with, with, again, students and coaching clients, that there are a few stories that people seem to have held on to, and they, they're the foundation of the predominant fear, the predominant barrier to their success. So you talk about fear. For me, it's a bit of anxiety. And I am actively trying to unwind some of those stories, that, and, and it has taken time. Mm-hmm. But attending to, in the moment where I'm anxious, mm-hmm. asking, what's going on? What am I anxious about? Who's, I haven't asked who's anxious. Well, and that, that's the key. Just ask, what is it that's anxious, or who is anxious? There's this ang- anxiety. Just, you can feel the anxiety. You can feel mm-hmm. it in your, your body. And just ask that. Perfect. I, I wish we would do a follow-up session and I could report out who is actually anxious. Is there... <laughs> And, and I'm assuming for our listeners, this isn't Maureen getting therapy, but that we all have some permutation of fear or anxiety that we're often not even aware of, and it's driving either where we act more overtly or what we avoid doing because of a fear. Yes, I think it's important to realize you can feel your way. You can feel that fear. Don't turn mm-hmm. away from it. You can feel into it, face it, open up into it, and see if it has a story. It has a story someplace. There's a story underneath that fear. If you can unwind that story, you can unwind that fear and that anxiety. So that is a brilliant entry into our summation. As a leader, I want to be as effective as possible I've taken on more than I can ever get done. I think most of us feel that way. So to the extent that I can unravel these conversations that are happening in a part of my brain that you're calling the blah, blah part, that is 
causing my fear, my anxiety, whatever words each of us has for that, that I start to ask, who is the fear, what is the fear, where am I, whatever variation of the question is, and help that little 8-year-old, 10-year-old recast the story, then that little entity isn't doing the speaking. Then, in fact, I, as Maureen the adult, you as Gary the adult, and all of our listeners as the adults, are, in fact, in charge again and present. So with that, I'm going to close us out and thank everyone for listening. Gary, thank you so much for joining us. And, thank you. Um, do you have a book title that you'd like to share quickly? Well, Happiness Beyond Thought is the main one, but just go to my, you can go to YouTube and put my name in the search box. You'll get all of my videos, and it's all free. Underneath any of those videos under Show More, there's all kinds of links to free sources. Perfect. Thank you. And for listeners who have questions, please reach out to me at info info at metcalf-associates.com. I can connect you with Gary if you don't get in touch with him directly, and or if you have something you want to share, please reach out. Thank you. This is Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf and Gary Weber. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope to see you here next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.